My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, every once in a while, I need to sing a song just like that one. Uh, it's very, like, vertical, right? And gets my eyes off of me. Uh, because I don't know about you, but I am my own default, <laughs> right? At the end of the day, uh, I'm often thinking about this guy. So to be able to sing right to God like that is just such a beautiful, uh, I don't know, it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy here, right? You know, Lord, uh, meet us here today. We love you. Thank you for this opportunity. Amen. All right, you guys go ahead and have a seat. We are uh, winding up the story of Jonah today. We've been in this for the last uh, few weeks. I'm, I'm sad to end it, but I, I'm also uh, super excited at the same time because it's been uh, great to tell uh, the story and to talk through the story. Uh, by the way, I didn't expect to be as convicted by the story uh, myself as I was going through. I didn't e- expect to take such a, a look inward, uh, but uh, that's just how God works. Uh, last week at the end of the story, we just saw this citywide repentance in, uh, in the city of Nineveh. Everybody's turning their hearts towards God, and we're picking up the story today right after that, after everybody has said, okay, God, <laughs> we give up. Uh, we're on your team. Uh, this is how chapter 4 begins. But Jonah, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Right? They just, they just repented. And then this says, but to Jonah, it seemed wrong, and he became angry. He became incensed. He became enraged, outraged. And he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Uh, And remember that forestall word. I knew that you're gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So at this point in the story, Jonah is admitting to us uh, that not only did he not want to go to Nineveh, he didn't want good things to happen at all. He didn't want good things to happen. He, he tried to push God away. He tried to prevent all of that uh, from happening. And then he says, now, Lord, uh, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And this is Jonah's second death wish, by the way, Uh, in case we thought that he was still maybe being sacrificial on the boat when the waves were uh, crashing and uh, threatening to take it down. And he says, oh, throw me overboard. If if we thought that maybe he was being sacrificial at that point, well, now it all becomes clear and it'll become clearer that Jonah just wants to end it all. It's his second death wish here. Uh, And by the way, the the first time he asked the sailors to take his life, he said, why don't you throw me overboard? Now he's asking God to do his bidding. Now, Lord, (laughs) here's the next thing I want you to do. Take my life. It's like even as he's shaking his fist at God and wanting to die, he just wants to blame somebody else for it, even if he's the one asking for it. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? I love this point in the story because you get this picture of God as, this, as a father, as a loving father, like pulling up a chair next to Jonah and saying, hey, son, <laughs> sit with me for a minute. Let, let's talk about this. Notice that God doesn't say, hey, Jonah, you're way out of line. He, he doesn't say, how dare you feel this way? He doesn't say your, your pain is not real, Jonah. He doesn't say, hey, J- Jonah, suicide, that's, 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 that's bad. You shouldn't be thinking about that. No, what he does is he asks a question that, that really is saying, tell me more about that. God is sitting beside him and saying, no, tell me more about what's going on inside of your heart, what's going on inside your soul. And this is, this is exactly how God works. God is always willing to engage humanity, to meet us where we're at, even when we have doubts, right? There's, there's doubters in the Bible. There's a famous doubter in the Bible. What, do you know what his name was? Thomas. Thomas. 
That poor guy even got the first name Doubting. <laughs> now we call him Doubting Thomas for the rest of history. That's how we refer to this guy. But he wasn't the first person to doubt. When Jesus uh, rose up from the dead, he showed himself to his disciples. And the story goes that Jesus showed all of his disciples his wounds. He showed every single one of them his wounds and said, this is who I am. And as far as we know, he had a little show and tell with them and other people were able to touch his wounds. Thomas doesn't see Jesus until a week later, the story tells us. And, and he's been for a week, he's been going, I don't know. I'm not going to believe it until I, I touch those wounds. And when Jesus stands in front of Thomas, he says, come here, touch the wounds. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't say, how dare you, Thomas? And after, the, after he, he touches the wounds, Jesus says, you know what? You believe because you've seen. Well, blessed are they who believe without seeing. But he's not shaming them. He's, he's talking about us. He's saying that, Thomas, there's going to come a time where people believe in me, and they don't even have this opportunity. But, but he lovingly comes alongside Thomas. I love that. And Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place Uh, east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. What does he think is going to happen? Actually, the question is, what does he he want to happen? That's the bigger question. He's made himself a fort. He went to a city one day. He said, in 40 days, something is going to happen. There's going to be a change. And then he goes out to sit for the other 39 days, <laughs> assumably. Uh, he, he goes, uh, presumably, he goes out there and he's like, I, I want it to be destroyed. He wants God to, to send fire. He's, he's made himself a fort and he's waiting for death. He's stewing. He's marinating in his anger and his discontent. And he's brewing hatred as he watches the city that he just delivered this half-hearted message to. Now, when I get to this point in the story, I, 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 I take a look inward and I go, okay, there's, there's a time to shut down bullies. He's, he's obviously mad because they're, they're bullies. There's a time to shut down bullies to stand in the way of that. But, but this, this is a story about saying, what's in our heart? Like, how do we approach the other, the person who's wronged us, the person who's different than us? And, and what Jonah is doing is he's sitting outside of the city and he's saying they don't deserve for good things to happen. And whenever we say they don't deserve, fill in the blank, <laughs> then we need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, right? We need to, we need to take a look. And say, whenever I say they don't deserve grace, they don't deserve mercy, they don't deserve forgiveness, then we need, I need to check myself. I, I heard a story uh, like 20 years ago about uh, these missionaries that went into Ecuador um, uh, the Elliott family and uh, the Saint family and, and some others, they, they went because they heard about this, this tribe uh, that was a murderous tribe. They, they had a culture of death. They were all killing one another. And, and they thought, you know what? Maybe there's a chance we can take the good news of Jesus into the jungles of Ecuador and try to make contact with these people. And there's a book written about this. It's called Through Gates of Splendor. Uh, and I, I was super inspired by this uh, a couple of decades ago when I first heard the story. And uh, it, what ends up happening, and, and it, gets, it gets worldwide coverage, this story, uh, the missionaries do make good contact. And these, these five men who went into the jungles, um, they make good contact. They start building these relationships. And then they're ambushed one day. And all five men are killed. All of them are speared. And um, what happens after that blows my mind. 
Because if that happened to my family, I'd hightail it and never go back. But, but these families stuck it out. These wives and their children, they're, they're heroes. And they decided that, no, 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 no. We made contact, and we want to see this story through to the end. And one of the, one of the kids who grew up living in the middle of these tribes, uh, uh, his name is Steve. And, and his dad was killed by this guy named Minkai. And today, Steve Saint calls Minkai, the guy who killed his father, his grandfather. Uh, and Minkai is a, is, a, is a pastor in this church in, in Ecuador. Listen, listen to what Steve Saint says here about this man and about these people. My mom and dad were missionaries down in the jungles, and when I was five, my dad flew off into the jungles like he did every day, but didn't come back. In the, in the Waurani culture, when somebody didn't like somebody, something that somebody else did and they couldn't ignore it, it got beyond that point, their only means of resolving the issue was to kill. When somebody killed somebody in your family, then it was the right and the responsibility of the others especially the males in that family, then to avenge that killing, to carry the vendetta until they uh, made it right and reconciled it by killing somebody or somebody's in that family. So when I went in, the Waurani knew that they had killed my father and his four friends, and so they had to assume that within their cultural understanding and assuming that the rest of the world lived the same way, it would be my right and my responsibility to avenge my father's death by killing them. So the smart thing to do is to kill me before I could get big enough that I could kill them. Now, pretty soon I began to realize everybody there had family members who had been speared either by other people in this clan or by other people in another clan. And so when it came around to finding out who had killed my father, you need to understand that the fact that my father had been speared by these people didn't distinguish me from them. It really made me more part of them. It was, it was, it was that almost that bond or that rite of passage that somebody in my family had been speared to. It made me really fit into the tribe more than it separated me from them. So, for me to know who the people were that killed my father was didn't seem that significant. I was around with people who were living with people who'd killed other members of their family too. If you get to know Minkai, you'll, you'll know. He's just very, very lovable, very loving, very gregarious and outgoing. Now he can be serious too. You know, he, he killed people. You don't go out and happily kill people with a spear. You have to be, you have to be worked up into an adrenaline driving frenzy fury to do something like that, but um, the side that I have seen of him has been a very, very loving um, man. The only thing that has really stuck with me during this 50 years that this story has been, that God has been writing this story, has been the, uh, the pain of believing that my dad and his friends had no way of knowing that this disaster, which must have seemed like failure to them. You know, they felt that God was leading them to go and share his markings, his carvings, to show them this better way to live to these people that had no friend in the rest of the world. And then here they were dying out in a lonely beach in the headwaters of the Amazon River in the middle of nowhere. And 
in the uh, rainforest. In the process of writing this down, I realized, you know, I'm writing about how people that are family to me killed my family. But you know, at the same time, it was just, it was just incredible to realize how God had orchestrated all this and then had orchestrated reconciliation without even anybody even planning it. That, that I could belong to both sides of what happened there at Palm Beach and then could go on being part of this through now the rest of my life. Uh, that's incredible. It, it really, it's a story that is beyond imagination. Nobody would dare to write a plot like this because nobody would believe it unless it was true. What, what kind of a love compels someone to find camaraderie and kinship with people who killed your family? What, what kind of a love compels somebody to say, these people who took the life of my father had no friend in the outside world? Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. This is the third time that Jonah has expressed his desire to die with this funny little thing that makes him so happy and then unhappy, right? He's just, he's so fickle, and it makes me go, man, our happiness has to be rooted in something more than circumstance, right? Than this just fleeting happiness. Now, there's a bunch of fun little wordplay that's happening here in this story, in this chapter. Uh, in the Hebrew mindset, the, the words for uh, distance and direction and time are, are all intertwined. Uh, and in Hebrew, uh, the past is in front of you. Okay, so know this. Now, this is what's happening with some wordplay here. We'll look at a few of these words that we see. These, these are rhyming words that we see, and they all come from the same root in this story. The first time we see the word kadam is uh, where it says, this is what I tried to forestall. Jonah says, I'm trying to get in front of you, God. I'm trying to prevent this from happening here. And then he goes out east of the city to watch what's happening. And then an east wind comes Upon him now. So, what is happening happening with the wordplay here is that, uh, and this is great. We're, we see this picture of Jonah stood in front of God, and he tried to leave it all behind. And he sat outside his circumstances, looking in, and was confronted with his past in front of him. So that, that's the craziest little wordplay there. It's so it's so fun. He stood in front of God. He tried to hold him at bay. He tried to leave it all behind. We talk about putting our past behind us, right? He sat outside his circumstances looking in. So he gets this perspective and he's confronted with his past in front of him. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Well, it is, he said. And I'm so angry I wish I were dead. And this is death wish number four if you're counting. 
And this is the second time where God patiently asks, is it right? And the word right here also means uh, happy. It also means successful. It also means beautiful. So what God is really asking Jonah is he's saying, do you have a happy reason to be angry? Uh, there's, there's sometimes being angry at something makes sense. Like there's, there's times where we should be angry. But, but God is saying, really? Do you have a happy reason to be angry right now? And Jonah wants to con Mari the whole situation. He's like, this life does not bring me joy. I want to get rid of it. Toss it out, right? He, he, doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to deal with it anymore. He's, he's like a little kid. Meh, I want to die. Meh. But you know what? He's also like me, if I'm honest. All right? Hashtag irony from the story I'm about to tell you. I was up in Auburn putting this very message together a couple of weeks ago, and I was going to meet my friend for lunch, and we decided we were going to go to this restaurant over here. Now, this restaurant is the parent restaurant for this restaurant on this side of the street, but I'd already been to this restaurant a few times doing some counseling appointments with friends, and so I, I didn't want to go to this restaurant again. I wanted to go to this restaurant. You following me? So I meet my friend over at this restaurant. We wait for a table. We get a table. I'm sitting at the table, and they come over, and they say, hey, we just, we just want to let you know that our kitchen is down today, and so you have to get food from the restaurant across the street. And I said, ah, oh, bummer. Okay, well, and I, I'm a little bit upset, but not super upset. And I was like, but we get, to, we get to order from this menu, though, right? Because it's a different menu. No, you don't get to order from this menu. You have to order from this menu. And I was like, oh, shoot. So, okay, so I ordered from that menu. And I'm sitting there talking to my friend. And it's pouring down rain outside. And this poor kid comes across the street. And he's carrying our lunches from this restaurant over to this restaurant uh, in, in a plastic bag running across the street. And... Um, I have this weird quirk where if I'm going to lay down money for something, because it costs $175 to eat lunch anywhere these days, if I'm going to lay down real money in a sit-down restaurant, then I want real plates and, and silverware. Does anybody else have that quirk? Like if I, if, okay, so if I go to In-N-Out, I get it. I'm eating on cardboard and paper napkins. That's how it goes. It's In-N-Out. Woo, high five. We all love it. But if I'm sitting down, right, then I want... I want real silverware and uh, real plates. But he comes and he opens this plastic bag and inside is this styrofoam container, the ones that make that annoying noise when you open them. You know, and it's like, open this thing up and there's, there's my food. And, and I thought, oh, man. And now I don't have a great poker face, but I think it was doing decent. But inside, I was uncontrollably, unjustifiably angry. Like I am redlining inside because of this going on. And I say, is there, well, do you have silverware that we can eat with? And he says, I'm sorry, we got to use plastic forks because the kitchen's down. I'm like, ah! (laughs) By the way, I was telling this story last night and the beautiful couple that makes a breakfast for our team here on the weekends made me breakfast today, and they put a little note on a napkin with real silverware for my breakfast that they made me today, which is so so hilarious. I was like, ha, funny guys. But so I'm sitting in this restaurant and I'm steaming mad, and God says, John, do you really have a right to be angry about the food? I mean, this is this. Is, I, I was just studying this chapter. And I was like, ha ha, funny God, way to use the story against me. It's not about me right now. No, it's totally. It totally was. I was so angry. 
okay, I get it, God. So I'm driving home. I'm coming down Auburn Folsom Road, and there's a, there's a car behind me, and, and these kids are driving way fast and reckless, and I can hear the bass thumping behind me, and, and the car is way too expensive. They didn't buy it. It was Dad's car, and I, I, I've got this story going on in my head, and I'm just so angry that these kids are they're trying to make two lanes out of a one-lane road as they're behind me, and, and, and I'm angry on the heels of putting this message together. And God says, John, do you have a right to be angry about the car? And I say, yes, <laughs> I do. I'm so angry I don't, I don't want to die. I don't want them to die. But if they ran daddy's car into the ditch, I wouldn't, that would be okay with me. Like, I don't want anybody to get hurt. But just like to see them kind of scoot off the side of the road and end up in the ditch, I'd be all right. And the Lord said to Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. God's really not talking about the plant with him. It's, it's really not about the plant. It's about the mess before the plant. It's about what's going on inside of here, right? It's not about plastic forks or, or eating the food you didn't want to eat or some kids driving daddy's car. And, like, it's not about that. It's about the mess that's going on inside of here. What what is going on in here that gets me to that point that makes me just go berserk? And then God says, and should I not have concern for that great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? And some people say that maybe God's making a reference here to the babies. They, they can't t- tell their right hand from their left. Or maybe it's a reference to people who are just wayward. They just need direction. They just, they just need some help. They need a friend in the world, right? Whatever the case is, God is saying, should I not have concern? You loved a plant, Jonah. <laughs> should I not love people? And this is how the story ends. Right there. Done. That's the end of the story. It doesn't end like the Sunday school version that I heard where Jonah says, oh, shucky darn, you're right, God. I got, I got to get my act together. Time to pull myself up by the bootstraps. Turn on Caleb for the ride home. You know, I mean, that's, he's, that's, not, that's not what's happening. It ends with this incredible tension. And when we get to this tension, we're supposed to ask ourselves some questions, really. See, I'm, I'm happy to be forgiven. Me? I want grace. I want mercy. I want forgiveness. Don't you? I want all of that stuff. I don't think I deserve it. But sometimes I really don't think you deserve it. <laughs> it's like, I don't deserve it, but I really don't think that they deserve it. But God loves my enemies. It's crazy. Your story is telling me that God loves my enemies. He loves your ex-wife. He loves your ex-husband. He loves your neighbor who hasn't brought your tools back or brought them back broken. He loves your boss who uh, you can't stand and won't give you vacation time off anymore and takes advantage of you and is incorrigible. And he loves that person who betrayed you or lied to you or lied about you. And he loves that, that little kid that said mean things to your kid at school that you want to smack upside the head with the Holy Spirit backhand. He, he loves that kid's parents 
who you don't think are, are doing a very good job of raising that child. He, he loves everyone. And, and at some level, I, I think many of us can get behind that, God loving people. We can go, okay, I got it. He's God. Of course he loves people. God loves everybody. He's God. But, but the story goes deeper than that. It's talking about us and, and me loving them is a whole different deal. Me loving people, that's a whole different deal. Now, there's real hurts. That's understandable. Sometimes we're angry. We feel betrayed. Yes, yes, yes. And we won't always get it at first. We don't have to walk around being shiny, happy people. And, and uh, we're supposed to grapple with it, though. It should at least feel uncomfortable to us. We should, we should be saying, okay, what do I do with the anger? What do I do with the crippling rage? What do I do with the ill will? What do I do with the desire to get back? What do I do with the feelings of superiority? What do I, what do, I do with all the things I've been conditioned with, like the racial conditioning I grew up in my family of origin? What do I do when there's groups of people pointing at this group of people and, and I have to deal with popular uh, opinion? And what do I do with my fear of the other? What do I do with that? We're supposed to feel the tension. If we don't, then something is deeply wrong. And this story is saying, what do we do with blank? Fill in the blank. Blank. We have to deal with it. So when we started this story of Jonah, uh, we went to the flannel graph, which is much like I heard the story for the first time in Sunday school, and we told the story, and, and it was much different, I think, than we hear it now. So I'd like to kind of just go over the story again, all right? So uh, Jonah was uh, a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. And a prophet's job, they're, they're supposed to stand in the gap. They're supposed to uh, go to the people and say, hey, this is what God says, and this is the way back to God, and God loves you, and God wants to have a relationship with you. But the, the problem is, is that Jonah was asked to go to a city called Nineveh. It was the capital of the vast Assyrian empire and enemies with the northern kingdom of Israel. So we can kind of understand what's going on here. But, but Jonah doesn't want any part of this. By the way, his name is, it means dove. Jonah means dove, and his dad's name is Amittai, which means uh, faithfulness. And they came from a place that's really not significant in history. And so Jonah, the dove, the son of faithfulness, gets this message and decides, I'm done. <laughs> and so in a very ironic twist, right at the beginning of the story, the dove, the son of faithfulness, hops on a boat, and he heads for the opposite side of the world in his mind. He wants to get as far away from God as he possibly can, but not only God, his responsibilities, his job, his family, his friends, he's just done. He just wants to get away, and he buys a ticket uh, for this ship that's bound for this port on the southern coast of Spain, and uh, he he just wants to get away. He's so committed. There's sailors on the ship, and the sailors on the ship, they worship different gods. And so at this point in the story, Jonah is confronted, once again, with people that are different than him. And it begs, what, what is Jonah going to do with these people? And, and the sea is getting rough. There's a storm that comes on the sea, and it's crazy, and, it, and, it, and it's going insane, and the ship is about ready to go down, and it actually it just it went down. So... Uh, there's a reason we did away with flannel boards, by the way. So, all right. Uh, so the ship goes down. It's about ready to go down. And does Jonah care for the people in this story? No, he's in the bottom of the ship. He's asleep. That's, that's where he's at. Now, the people that really 
shouldn't care about him actually care about him. And the people who don't know God are actually turning to God in this story. And, and, and the mindset at this time was if something bad is happening, then somebody must have done something bad to cause this to happen. It's this kind of this, it's this transactionalism is what we call it. And so the sailors say, Oh man, let's roll the dice, let's cast lots, let's draw straws to see, uh, let's consult the magic eight ball to see who is responsible for all of this. And it falls on Jonah. So they go to Jonah and they say, hey, who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? And Jonah, even though he's shaking his fist at God, even though he's rebelling, he has this incredible amount of pride and he stands up and he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God of the land and the sea and these guys get it more than he does and they go, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. What is happening? Why are you doing this? Why are you running away? Why, why don't you pray to your God? And they, and they start praying to God, oh God, please save us. And he says, well, I got an idea. Why don't you just throw me overboard? Because he just wants it to be over. He's done. He's not trying to save their lives. He's not trying to calm this. He's trying to die and blame it on them. And they say, oh, no, we're not going to do that. And so they pray to God, and they row as hard as they can to get back to land, but they can't do it. And they ask God, they say, oh, Lord, Yahweh, please don't hold us responsible for taking this man's life. And they throw him overboard, and the sea becomes calm. And Jonah thinks, that's it. Done. This is where I die. This is the end. But God's got a good sense of humor, and, and God also loves Jonah because God loves everybody. And he sends a big fish to come along, and the big fish swallows Jonah, and he's got a lot of time to think in the belly of that fish. He's got a lot of time to pray, and as a matter of fact, he does pray, but he prays the most backwards, weird, mishmashy prayer in the world. It's like some Old Testament quotes and, and some finger-pointing and blaming and he never really says, I'm sorry. In the prayer, he just basically says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow through with what I said I was going to do. But, but he never says, I'm sorry. So God says, okay, I'm going to give you a second chance to follow through with this. And so fish spits him out on dry land. Jonah goes over here, and he's a good distance from Nineveh. If he, if he hightails it, if he walks 20 miles a day, it's going to take him over a month to get to Nineveh. So he's got plenty of time to think about what he's going to do and what he's going to say. He gets to Nineveh, and he gives them a sermon that's five words long. He doesn't mention God. And it even seems like he's intentionally ambiguous. You look at the message that he gave. He says, 40 days, and there's going to be a change. And then he leaves. He goes one day into a city that requires a longer stay, and that's his short-term stay and his, his minuscule little message. And then he goes outside the city. But inside the city, it's great because in another twist in the story, in a message that didn't even mention God, all of people somehow hear God. And all of the people turn to God. And the, the story goes that they put on sackcloth uh, so they took off their fancy clothes and they, they stripped down, they put on sackcloth and they said, we want to be right with God. Everybody, from the greatest to the least in this story, the people that shouldn't be turning to God are actually turning to God in spite of Jonah's best effort to, to thwart God's plan. And he goes outside of the city and he's waiting for God to possibly change his mind and send fire from heaven. And he's sitting outside the city and the sun is coming down on his head 
And God says, well, I'm going to teach Jonah a little lesson here. And so he has a vine grow up over Jonah's head to keep him out of the heat. And man, Jonah loves that vine. I mean, who wouldn't? But then God says, wait, that's not the, that's not the end of this vine. I'm going to send a worm. And he sends a worm. The worm eats the vine. And then Jonah says, ah, I'm so angry I could die. And then time after time, he tells God, I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. His anger, his hatred is just so deep that he just wants it to be over. And God continually, patiently keeps saying, do you have a right to be angry? Don't you know I love people? Do you have a right to be angry? Don't you know I love people? And all the time, Jonah is shaking his fist. And God says, don't you understand that in this city, there's people that need my help, people that I love. Jonah, don't you get it? And there's, there's even animals. I even love the animals. Jonah, I love everybody. And the story ends with this great, that's a weird place to have that cow and that baby. (laughs) Sorry about that. It ends with this tension. Years later, uh, people are going to ask Jesus for a sign. They're going to say, tell us who you are. Prove to us who you are. And Jesus is going to tell these people, I'm going to give you a sign. The sign is the sign of Jonah. He was in the belly of a fish for three days, three nights. So shall the Son of Man be. Now, what's beautiful about that is that when Jesus comes on the scene and he says that and he talks about the sign of Jonah, we know the rest of the story. The rest of the story doesn't end with Jesus in the ground. The rest of the story is about resurrection, and in one of Jesus' last prayers on earth that we have recorded, he, uh, before he goes to the cross, he's praying for you and I. He's praying for unity. He's praying that we'd all be on the same page. You can read this prayer in John chapter 17. And, and, and Jesus starts the story. where Jesus starts the story with where you belong and who you belong to. He's calling us all into this story. See, for so often we've told this story of God as, hey, you've done a bunch of wrong things and you need to get right with God. But that's not where Jesus starts. Jesus starts at a totally different place. He starts uh, at, a, at a table, right? Where, where everybody gets the, the same bread and, and the same juice. Everybody gets the same portion. This is, this is what he invites us into. And as a matter of fact, when Jesus is talking about the table, the night he was betrayed, the person who betrayed him was actually sitting at the table. I guess crazy, a crazy picture of unity. And so we're going to take this table together uh, today. And I think it would be a good idea for all of us, I'm going to do this, to think about the people. When we were talking about hatred and having things uh, against people, there were people that came to our minds, right? We know them. We know them. Let's pray for them today. Only you know who they are. When we come to this table, thank God for this. Our past is in front of us like Jonas was. And uh, let's remember him and pray for those people that are hard for us to love. And there's some cards here, uh, and you're all invited to take one of these cards. I I hope you do, and put it on your, your bathroom mirror where you stare at yourself in the morning or... Uh, or your car, or in your Bible, or your purse, wherever, your wallet. It says this. It says, even they do this in remembrance of me. 
Even they do this in remembrance of me. And so we're going to remember him together today. So please do that. On the ends of the table uh, are gluten-free options if you need that. And um, there's two sides of the table too. So um, you don't have to wait for somebody at the beginning of the table. You just kind of go to a spot, right? And we'll kind of move through this. But take your time. We've got about seven or eight minutes as we sing to do this. And let's remember him together. Lord, thank you for this invitation. Thank you for this story. Thank you for a chance to remember you. We love you. Amen.